0: Welcome to this audible Audio presentation of The Wailing Octopus by John Blake, the pen name for writer Harold Goodwin. The Wailing Octopus is the 11th Rick Bred adventure story, and in this exciting story, our heroes Rick and Scotty fly off to the Caribbean, along with Doctors Tony Briotti and Hobart Zircon, in search of pirate treasure in the guise of a centuries-old missing golden statue of St. Francis. The boys who become entangled with foreign spies and a hurricane and Steve Ames and the U.S. Navy. And it's a nonstop race to the treasure. Here's a small spoiler. The octopus never really wails. And for once, the artist who did the book cover made Rick and Scotty not look like complete dorks. And now, the wailing octopus.
1: CHAPTER ONE, DESTINATION, CLIPPER KEY The sky wagon droned through Caribbean skies, following a compass course that led to Charlotte Amali, the capital city of the Virgin Islands. With eager interest, the four people in the small plane watched the blue water below. In a few moments, they would pass over the island that was their ultimate destination. Rick Brandt was in the pilot's seat, "'He turned to the husky, black-haired boy sitting next to him. "'See anything yet?' he asked. "'Don Scott had been surveying the far horizon through the binoculars. "'He took them from his eyes and shook his head. "'Nothing but water. You sure there's an island called Clipper K?' "'Rick let the plane fly itself for a moment while he stretched luxuriously. "'He was a lean, long-legged young fellow with brown hair and eyes.' and a bone-deep tan. He grinned at his friend. No faith. That's the trouble with you. No logic. That's the trouble with you, Scotty countered. If there was such an island, it would be called an island, not a K. A K is something that follows an O, as in O-K. The two scientists in the rear seat had been listening with amusement to the boys. Since the start of the expedition, Scotty had professed doubt and misgiving more for the sake of conversation than anything else. At least Rick was pretty sure of this. Dr. Anthony Briotti, archaeologist of the Spindrift staff, leaned forward. At least pronounce it correctly, Scotty. C-A-Y is pronounced key. See? Scotty exclaimed triumphantly. The only place where they have islands called Keys is in Florida. We're on a wild goose chase, I tell you. Nick Hobart Zircon, a nuclear physicist and longtime friend of the boys, tapped Scotty on the shoulder. Since you're so certain of that, may I ask you why you came? Scotty tried to look martyred. Only because of the buddy system, he said solemnly. First rule of underwater safety, or above-water safety for that matter, is that you have to swim with a buddy. You and Tony swim together, so I had to go along as a buddy for Rick. "'Somebody has to chase the mermaids away from him. "'May as well be me.' "'Well, that's nice of you,' Rick said soberly. "'There'll probably be a whole horde of mermaids guarding the treasure, "'not to mention half a dozen sea monsters.' "'Tony Briotti said, "'There's one mermaid I wish were with us. "'That's Barbie. "'After all, she started this whole thing. "'Too bad she has to miss out.' "'Rick's pretty sister, Barbara Brandt, "'had unwillingly launched the flight to the Virgin Islands.' by getting into an argument with Tony Briotti about the authenticity of the legend that pirates had once used Spindrift Island as a hangout. Tony had challenged the legend. After that, of course, proof had to be found. Rick had recalled digging up the remains of a campfire in Pirates' field during the installation of equipment for the moon rocket, the first great experiment that had put the Spindrift Island Research Group in business as a foundation, headed by Rick's father, Hartson Brandt. It was during that experiment that Scotty had joined the staff after rescuing Rick from an unscrupulous gang. The two boys had been on a number of expeditions together since that time and were fast friends. Zircon was one of the original Spindrift group. Youthful Tony Briotti was one of the new staff members, but he had already earned the loyalty and friendship of the boys by his fine leadership of an expedition to the Philippines. Starting with the campfire site... Barbie and the boys had excavated Pirate's Field under Tony's direction. They had unearthed positive evidence that the pirates had landed there. The most vital evidence was the remains of a logbook, once the log of the bark made in hand, sunk by the woman pirate Anne Bonny off the island of Clipper Key in the Virgin Islands. Scotty turned and looked at the two scientists. I'm just kidding, of course. You couldn't have kept me from coming without tossing me into irons. But seriously, do you expect to find treasure, Tony? The archaeologist grinned. Depends on what you mean by treasure, huh? As I recall, one definition is something rare and precious. Well, a chance to go skin diving in the Virgin Islands is certainly that, rare and precious. At least I think so. Hobart Zircon grunted. So do I. Amen to that, Rick echoed. You're evading the issue, Scotty accused. "'You know perfectly well what I mean. "'Do you expect to find that golden statue mentioned in the logbook?' "'Expect? "'On a treasure hunt? "'One hopes. "'One doesn't expect,' Zircon stated in a booming voice. "'Rick smiled to himself. "'Probably no spindrift expedition had ever started with such a flimsy excuse. "'According to the log of the maiden hand, "'the ship had gone down before the pirates could locate a golden statue of St. Francis.' hidden by the bark's captain, Thomas Campion. According to Captain Campion, the statue had weighed a hundredweight. Certainly a hundred pounds of gold was worth going after. But there were a few considerations that made finding it rather unlikely. In Captain Campion's words, That we did prevent the buccaneers from finding the blessed statue was most fortunate. Yet the bark did go to her death in twenty phantoms and so the statue is lost. Rick and Scotty had become underwater enthusiasts on their return from the Philippines, and both had aqualung equipment that would take them to 20 fathoms without much difficulty. However, working time at that depth was sharply limited by the capacity of their tanks. This was assumed that they were able to find the wreck of the maiden hand in the first place. Still, there was enough of a chance to provide an excuse for a vacation expedition. The real purpose so far, as Rick was concerned, was to get in some superb swimming in clear water. He also intended getting plenty of underwater movies of the colorful reefs and fish. Scotty planned to do some underwater hunting. Tony Briotti's interest grew out of his profession. The Virgin Islands had been pretty well worked over by archaeologists, and most of the early Indian middens and mounds explored. But on the west coast... Archaeologists equipped with aqualungs had recently found primitive artifacts a half-mile offshore, and Tony wanted to do a little underwater artifact-hunting of his own. Hobart Zircon was the only one without a specific objective. He had readily agreed to go along simply because he wanted a vacation. He had said, Tell you what, I'll go along and do some surface fishing. Rick and Scotty can catch fish underwater and put them on my hook, then signal me to pull them up. If the fish aren't heavy enough to ruin my rest, I'll haul them in. Mr. and Mrs. Brant had already made plans to take a vacation in Canada, and Barbie was registered at the summer girls' camp. Weiss, Winston, Gordon, and Shannon, the other staff scientists, were away on various projects. So the four treasure hunters had welcomed an excuse to go off on a venture of their own. They would have a wonderful time, Rick thought, and who knew they might even find treasure. Scotty had been looking through the binoculars again, and he gave Rick a grin. I'll take it back, he said. There is an island ahead. The scientist leaned forward eagerly, and Rick strained to see. Sure enough, in a few moments they began to make out the island on the horizon ahead. Rick had enough confidence in his navigation to be certain that it was Clipper Key. The group had spent the night in Puerto Rico, then departed early in order to fly off the direct route for an advanced look at Clipper Key. Rick didn't intend to land. He would circle the island once or twice and then head again for Charlotte Amalie on the island of St. Thomas. Scotty asked, Where does the word key come from, anyway? Tony Briani answered, it Comes from the Spanish, Scotty. It means island, or islet. However, the Spanish got it from the Taino people, who were the Indians in the Antilles. The island was close enough now so that they could discern its shape. Rick saw that it formed a rough crescent, running from north to south. It was a mile long and perhaps a half mile wide at its greatest width, tapering to the horns of the crescent. He saw also that the color of the water changed gradually from the fathomless blue of the ocean to the green of shallow water. Inwardly excited, he put the nose of the plane down and let the small craft pick up speed. Scotty grinned his pleasure, and Rick knew that his pal was just as excited in spite of his joking skepticism. Rick leveled off at an altitude of 4,000 feet and put the plane in a wide circle. Zircon leaned over Tony to look out the window, and Rick had to compensate in a hurry because the big scientist's weight threw the plane out of trim. And Scotty, just as eager, leaned over to Rick's side, and the trim had to be corrected again. The island was the travel agent's wildest dream. The blue water gradually shifted to green, then lighter green, and then finally the white of lovely beaches on both sides of the island. Lines of surf marked the position of reefs off both shores. Somewhere along the western reef was the wreck of the maiden hand. Rick wondered if they would have divers' luck and locate the ancient bark at the same time he was sure they would. "'Plenty of vegetation,' Briati remarked. "'Probably palms, perhaps some mangrove,' Sir Khan agreed. "'Take us down for a closer look, Rick.' Rick obliged by standing the sky wagon up on a wing and sliding down as quickly as safe flying allowed. He, too, wanted a closer look. He cast a glance at his gas gauge. There was enough fuel with a margin of safety.' "'unless he got too enthusiastic about lingering around the island. "'He leveled off again at a thousand feet "'and flew up the east coast, between the outer reef and the beach. "'This was the Atlantic side of the island, "'and the surf on the reef was heavy. Cottages, Scotty called. "'Look!' "'They counted seven on the eastern side of the island, "'most of them near the middle. "'It was hard to see details along the palms, "'but they seemed small and unpainted.' like fishermen's shacks. Rick reversed course and flew down the western side. They counted five more. One fairly pretentious beach house was near the northern tip of the island. In general, the houses on the western side seemed better kept and slightly larger. A few houses had small docks off the southern tip of the island, and on the western side a boat was trawling. The occupants waved as Rick flew over. Wonder which house is ours? Scotty asked. They didn't know, of course. Arrangements for a beach house had been made for them by a friend of Zircon's, and not until they landed at Charlotte or Mali would they get the details. The same friend, Dr. Paul Ernst, had also arranged for a boat to be used as a diving tender. Rick was tempted to land in the smooth water off the western shore. The sky wagon had been equipped with pontoons for that very purpose. They had realized that no landing place would be available on the quay for a wheeled aircraft but there was little to be gained by landing now when they didn't even know which house would be theirs. Besides, there were supplies and equipment to be picked up and charts to be obtained, and the sky wagon needed to have the tank topped off since they couldn't very well carry aviation gas to the island. Reluctantly, Rick asked, "'Anybody want to see anything else?' "'Not me,' Hobart Zircon said flatly. "'I want to get to Charlotte and so we can get started back.' That water looks clear enough to drink. Do you see any signs of wrecks on the bottom? Tony inquired. No one had. No one had looked. They were too interested in getting an overall view of Clipper Key. Rick set his course for St. Thomas. Now that he thought about it, he was rather pleased with himself. The flight from Spindrift was the longest single trip he'd ever taken in the sky wagon. The party had stopped for fuel as needed, and had stayed overnight as darkness overtook them along the way. He had hit every destination on nose and on time. And now the end of the trip was in sight without a single incident to mark smoothness. In a short time, the mountains of St. Thomas rose out of the sea, and soon afterwards Rick circled high above the colorful rubes of Charlotte Amalie. He swished on his radio and asked for seaplane landing instructions. The airfield directed him to the proper landing place, a beach and a pier at the edge of the city. Then Scotty took over the mic, and while Rick started in for a landing, asked the airfield tower to phone Dr. Paul Ernst, Zircon's friend, and notify him of their arrival. Apparently, the tower operator phoned immediately because as Rick taxied toward the dock, Zircon saw his friend waiting. Following the instructions of a dockman. Rick beached the sky wagon and cut the engine. Two husky Virgin Islanders hauled the ship higher onto the beach, and the spindrifters climbed out. Dr. Ernst was a small, bespeckled man with a shock of unruly white hair. He looked like a country doctor, which was reasonable enough, Rick thought, because that was just about what he was. Charlotte of Mali, with a population of about 11,500, could not be described exactly as a big city. The doctor greeted them all cordially and then immediately got down to business. "'I'm sorry you are not remaining in Charlotte Mali. However, Hobart, I have done as you requested, for tonight I have reservations for you at one of the oldest hotels, Alexander's Rest, named for Alexander Hamilton, of course.' Rick remembered that the revolutionary hero had been brought up in the Virgin Islands. "'The beach cottage is waiting at Clipper Key. "'It is on the western side, the third from the southern tip of the island. "'You shall have my own boat. "'I think you will find it ideal for a diving tender. "'I call it the Water Witch. "'An attractive name, no? "'I have checked on your equipment. "'It is held at the warehouse in my name. "'The supplies you wish to buy here have been ordered "'and are waiting at Anderson's supply house. "'I have told them you will be calling.' The group listened, delighted at the obvious efficiency with which Dr. Ernst had taken care of Zircon's requests. By lunchtime, they had picked up their equipment and supplies. Scotty had tested the twin diesel engines on the Water Witch and announced himself more than pleased. Rick had checked over the aqua lungs and compressors that had come down with his camera and other equipment by freight. The supplies had been stowed, the sky wagon refueled and nothing remained but to check into the hotel. This, they had decided, could wait until after lunch. While the scientists drove off in Dr. Ernst's car to pick up the doctor at his office, Rick and Scotty walked into town and headed for the Danish pastry, where the group was to meet for lunch. Rick spoke his amazement. Look at us, he marveled. Ready to go. No trouble, no strain, no pain. Have you ever seen an expedition get off to such a smooth start? We can't lose, Scotty. After beginning like this, we can't help but find the treasure. Scotty grinned his agreement. I didn't ask, but I wouldn't be surprised if the good Dr. Ernst hasn't done some advanced diving and marked the statue's location with a buoy hung round his neck, just to make things easier for us. Twenty fathoms, Rick said reflectively. That's a lot of water. Besides, we don't know how accurate Captain Campion's guess was. We may be getting into water that's too deep for us. Which, though unknowing, was one of the most prophetic remarks he'd ever made. Chapter 2 The Scuba Slip Charlotte o'malley had color. It was an old community dating back to Danish ownership of the Virgin Islands, and there was a feeling of antiquity underneath the color of the tropics. There were no sharp lines to the buildings. Everything had a pleasant, weathered look. Friendly folks, Scotty observed after the tenth passerby had bidden them a good day. Doesn't seem to matter whether they're rich or poor. They look happy, and they're certainly polite. I like it, Rick agreed. Those colored roofs get me. He stumbled on a cobblestone and added, "'But the street could stand some improving. "'Cobbles are fine for horses, maybe, but they're hard on cars. "'What do they do here for a living?' Scotty asked. "'Wish we had Chada along. "'He could read off the straight dope from his World Almanac.' "'Their Indian friend Chada was at home in Bombay, "'and they hadn't heard from him in quite a while. "'His ability to quote from the World Almanac, "'which he had memorized, had caused the boys considerable amusement.' even while they appreciated having a kind of walking encyclopedia with them. They passed a fruit stand where women were shopping for mangoes, sour sobs, and other delicious-looking things, including sugar cane. That's part of it, Rick said. Sugar. This is also the headquarters for Bay Rum. Scotty's eyebrows went up. Bay Rum? He stepped out of the way to let an ancient woman on a donkey go by. What's the Bay part of it? "'Rick shrugged. "'Search me. "'Anyway, you don't drink it. "'You put it on your face. "'I guess it was originally distilled from bayberry trees or something. "'Anyway.' "'He stopped suddenly as Scotty's finger sank into his arm. "'Look!' Scotty exclaimed. "'Rick looked and let out a yell. "'Steve? Steve Ames?' In the next moment, he could have bitten his tongue out because it was entirely possible that Steve wasn't traveling under his own identity. Ames was an athletic-looking young man in a white suit and Panama hat. He stopped at Rick's hail, turned, and waited for the boys to catch up. His face split into a pleased grin. Rick breathed his relief. Evidently, Steve didn't mind being called by name. The boys knew Steve as Spindrift's contact with Yannick the Joint Army-Navy Intelligence Group, for which Spindrift had worked in the past. I wonder what he's doing here, Scotty muttered. Well, we'll soon find out, Rick said. Steve greeted them cordially. What brings you two wanderers to these shores? We were about to ask the same of you, Rick returned. Steve grinned at the obvious curiosity on the boys' faces. Nothing very exciting. I'm here on a little vacation. I'm swimming. Really? What kind of swimming? Scotty wanted to know. Oh, skin-diving, mostly. Gosh, that's wonderful, Rick exclaimed. Scuba or snorkel? There was the barest of hesitations before Steve replied. Snorkel. There's nothing that's more fun than snorkeling around the reefs. That's the only way to swim in waters like these. You could get right down among the fish. Rick saw Scotty's mouth open to point out Steve's error. But he stepped on his friend's foot and said quickly we're here for swimming too maybe we can join forces he knew the answer would be no steve wasn't vacationing he was on a case a vacationing skin diver would know that a snorkel is nothing but a tube that allows the swimmer's face to float down in the surface of the water while looking for something to dive after once the dive starts the snorkel has no purpose, since its short length only allows it to project a few inches above the surface, while a diver is floating face down. On the other hand, scuba, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, like the boy's aqualungs, really did allow the diver to get down among the fish. "'Thanks for the invitation,' Steve said. He smiled. "'I don't usually try a cover story unless I have it down cold.' Just for my future guidance, where did I slip up? Your faces were quite a study there. Rick told him. Steve nodded. Thanks. I just got here on the morning plane. I haven't even been briefed yet. By tonight, I'll be an expert on skin diving. The statement only whetted further Rick's oversharp curiosity. If Steve was to be briefed on skin diving, it sounded like a case that would interest him and Scotty. Steve continued to smile. I don't want to linger too long. Want to give me a hand? Rick refrained from shouting and merely nodded his head. Scotty, with only slightly less restraint, said, You know we do. Fine. Don't look. In the doorway of the tailor shop is a dark-complexioned man in a gray sharkskin suit. He's a tail. He picked me up at the airport. I don't know the town well enough to lose him easily in broad daylight. Never been here before. Take him out for me? Rick and Scotty nodded. Neither looked toward the doorway. How will we get in touch with you? Rick asked. Steve hesitated. There's no one I'd rather see more of, and no one I'd rather have on my side. But this case is not for you guys. Just do me a favor. Forget you ever saw me you never know when you'll need help, Rick pointed out. We won't horn in, but it won't do any harm to know how we can reach each other. Tonight we'll be at a hotel called Alexander's Rest. Tomorrow we take off for an island called Clipper Key. All right, if you really need to reach me, call the duty officer at the UDT base and leave a message. I'll get it. Rick turned slightly. In a plate glass window across the street, he could see a reflection of the tailor shop Steve had mentioned and he could make out the form of a man in the shadowed doorway. He estimated that the shop was about 50 feet away. Scotty was also measuring the situation. He said, Walk away from us, so the tail will have to come by. Steve nodded. He shook hands, gave them each a grin, and was gone. Rick said loudly, Give me your shoulder to lean on, Scotty. I've got a rock in my shoe. Scotty obliged, and Rick half-turned as he did so. He saw the man in the gray sharkskin suit saunter out of the doorway and start toward them. Rick balanced on one leg, one hand on Scotty's shoulder, the other hand fumbling with the shoelace as he lifted his foot. The tail walked toward them, unfolding a paper as he did so. He was apparently devoting his full attention to the paper. His actions said he didn't even know the boys existed. You ought to get tighter shoes, Scotty observed. Then you wouldn't get stones in them. "'Save the advice,' Rick grunted. "'I've got a knot in the lace.' The man came abreast of them, between Rick and the building. And in that moment, clawing wildly for balance, Rick lost his hold on Scotty's shoulder. He fell squarely against the man in the gray suit and crushed him into the building. "'Hey!' the man yelled. "'What's the idea?' Scotty rushed to the rescue, took the fallen shadow by the shoulders, and tried to pull him to his feet. This only made matters worse since Rick was stretched across his legs. I'm so sorry, Scotty said. Gosh, I'm sorry. He just slipped. Here, let me help you up. Get off me, the man yelled. Rick tried lost his balance again and fell against the man's chest, pinning him to the sidewalk. Scotty groaned. Rick, you clumsy ox, get off the man. I'm trying to, Rick said plaintively. "'My shoe came off. Here, help me up. Help yourself. I'm trying to help this gentleman.' Scotty returned sharply. Rick rolled clear, and Scotty got the man to his feet. He was something less than spotlessly clean, thanks to the dust of the road, and there was a rip in the arm of his coat. "'Look at that!' Scotty exclaimed. "'Heck, you ripped his coat!' Rick looked embarrassed. "'I'm terribly sorry—' Here, sir, let me take you to this tailor shop. We can have it repaired in a jiffy. Forget it, the man snapped. And get out of my way. I'm in a hurry. It was all my fault, and I refuse to take no for an answer, Rick said firmly. He took the man by the arm. Come on, it'll only take a second. You can't walk around town like that. I insist on having your suit repaired. I'm sure that the tailor can mend it so that no one would ever notice. No, the man grated. Please stand aside. Both boys had managed to block the sidewalk. Please, Rick pleaded. This is terribly upsetting. We really should have the damage to your suit repaired. The man's dark complexion was turning a grayish pink with rage. Rick estimated quickly. If he knew Steve Ames, the Yannick agent was long gone, and the tale would not catch up with him again. They had delayed the shadow for perhaps two minutes, but for Steve that would be more than enough time rick stepped aside very well if you insist i do the man brushed by and hurried off the boys looked at each other and grinned he won't catch steve rick said not a chance well my clumsy friend shall we put your shoe back on and go meet the others for lunch we shall rick returned indeed we shall he slipped his shoe on and tied it quickly Wasn't it interesting where Steve said we could reach him? Steve had said at the UDT base. That meant simply at the home of the Navy Frogmen, the underwater demolition teams. No wonder Steve had said he would be an expert on skin diving by nightfall. He was going to be with the most expert experts of all. Rick sighed. Just our luck. He doesn't want us on the case. Wouldn't it be great to work with the Navy Frogmen? We would learn plenty. Forgetting St. Francis? Scotty inquired. There he lies, twenty fathoms down, probably covered with barnacles and waiting to be rescued. And you want to go fogging off with the frogman? All right, okay, don't rub it in. We'll go back to being interested in the bark maiden hand and St. Francis and pirates. Let's cast off, my hearty. The Danish pastry was only a few blocks away. Dr. Ernst and the spin-drifters were already seated. The boys joined them, with apologies for being late, but without mentioning their meeting with Steve Ames. There was nothing to be gained by bringing the matter up in front of Dr. Ernst. They could tell Zircon and Tony later. Zircon knew Steve, but Tony didn't. Over dessert, Dr. Ernst reached into his bag and brought forth a chart. I thought you might need this he said. It was a detailed chart of Clipper Key and the surrounding waters. It showed clearly the position of the reefs, and it gave soundings and showed the depths. Zircon shook his massive head. Ball, your thoughtfulness has never failed to amaze me. What will we have done without you? Ernst smiled his pleasure. Thank you, Hobart. I try to be thorough. Besides, I want you all to have a pleasant recollection of the Virgin Islands. We who live here love them very much. The boys and Tony echoed Zircon's thanks and then fell to a study of the chart. It was apparent that the water deepened rapidly beyond the western reef. In a few places, the Twenty-Fathom line was only a short distance out. Do you have any idea where this ship went down? Dr. Ernst asked. A bear idea, Tony replied, was off the western shore of the island, probably close to the reef, in twenty fathoms of water. The bark had been hit and was sinking. The captain ran for the island with the hope of beaching the ship on the reef, but he never made it. The bark went down, and Aunt Bonnie's pirates picked up the survivors. We know of Aunt Bonnie here, Dr. Ernst told them. You realize that the Virgin Islands were once a hangout for the pirates? Oh, we have a dark and bloody history, what with piracy, slave rebellions, and even Indian massacres. You never know it, Brick said. This seems like the most peaceful place I've been in in years. He didn't add that the peace was only apparent. Steve Ames wasn't needed in really peaceful places. Something was stirring under the tropical calm of St. Thomas. "'Tonight you must have a taste of St. Thomas' home life,' Dr. said. "'You shall be my guests at dinner. Dr. Briotti will be interested in my collection of Indian pottery. And you, young men, will be interested in my wife's hobby, which is fish. She has an amazing collection.' "'Are they alive?' Scotty asked. "'Oh, yes, indeed, in saltwater aquariums. Our misfortune makes it easy. You see—' We have no natural fresh water supplies on St. Thomas. We depend on catching rain for our drinking water. So our plumbing is operated by seawater, of which we have plenty. As a result, Mrs. Ernst is able to have a constant supply of seawater flowing through her aquariums. I know you'll be interested. The boys agreed. Mrs. Ernst's hobby sounded like fun. After lunch, Dr. Ernst departed for his office, leaving the Spindrift Group to their own devices. Not much remained to be done, except for checking in at their hotel. For now, they were contentious to walk around town. As they passed the post office, where Alexander Hamilton had once been a clerk, Scotty smiled meaningfully at Rick. "'Steve lost a tail this morning, remember?' Rick looked at him doubtfully. "'Of course I do. Why?' Somebody loses and somebody gains, Scotty replied cheerfully. Don't look behind you, but we picked up one.